Welcome to the Mike on Much podcast. I am your host, Mike Veerman. And in a change of protocol today, uh, instead of Max, our producer, we have our pop culture aficionado, Shane Cunningham, on at the start of the show. In fact, he's going to be with us for the whole show. Shane, how's it going? I'm doing very well. I'm like, I can't say this normal. I'm sorry. I'm doing good. I'm great. So Max isn't here. He's doing band stuff in LA. Uh, So we have Shane on. But Shane ties into this show quite well because uh, our guest today, our feature guest, is former Stone Temple Pilots frontman Scott Weiland. Is it Weiland or Weiland? I said Weiland. I think that's what people, I mean, I feel like throughout my life, whenever you're talking about Stone Temple Pilots, it's like Scott Weiland is what you say. But I feel like people say Weiland. Did, did I say it was Wayland or Wyland? Just, I can't just now even, I can't remember what I said. It's a very confusing last Wayland. name. Let's uh, Wayland. Hmm. I don't know. We're going to take a break and look it up. All right, we're back. Shane, we looked this up. I can't remember what it was. Do you? <laughs> was it Wyland? Here's the thing. Wyland. Some forms will say it's, it's Wyland. Uh, some will say it's Wayland. Howard Stern calls him Scott Wyland. On the Mike on Much podcast, we're just going to call him Scott. Yes. And you're very concerned about your artistic integrity being called into question if you get it wrong, right? I feel like I should know his last name as the host of the show. This feels like a pretty important thing. This is the sort of thing that I think a producer would maybe research and figure out. But unfortunately, ours is in L.A. Okay, but before we get to Scott, and it is interesting once we get to Scott because Shane was actually in the interview with me. And we will tell that story uh, uh, after this. But before that, Shane, this weekend, uh, you and I, we went to a wedding in Cooperstown, New York. We did. It was a bit of a road trip style thing. That's exactly what it was. And it was kind of an interesting wedding because it was combined with a lot of people from work. So like my boss's boss was there. (laughs) That's true. So I had that looming and I have a bit of a problem where I can't like, um, what's it called? Like I can't filter myself. (laughs) Really? Yeah. And you're very good at that. So I'm like, okay, Mike's not going to have a problem with this. How am I going to fare? But my plan was, like I usually do at work, I, I, I kind of sequester myself away from everyone and I try to not talk because what if I say something stupid or whatever. So I, my plan was basically to just hide out by your, by your side and not really talk to the bosses. That was the plan. But then... A couple drinks. A couple drinks and then I'm really <laughs> unfiltery and then a couple laughs start landing at... At like we had like what was it like a a late lunch? Yeah, we so everyone gets into town on the Friday and the weddings on the Saturday, but that means you kind of have the whole Friday day and Friday evening to kind of do stuff. So it's like all of us people that have kind of come to this town from Toronto, we all hang out. So we meet for like a late lunch. So yeah, we showed up and then right away, uh, the boss's name is Dave, and uh, he called us over. We're drinking beers. And I feel more comfortable with him than I kind of presupposed I would. Sure. So we're kind of laughing. and But I've never really known what to say. I'm uh, authority figures. I'm very uncomfortable around. So anytime there was an awkward pause, though, Mike was just like, boom, like filling in the conversation stuff. But then I would chirp in with the odd zinger and it would land and it would feel so good. Everyone at the table's laughing. Yeah. So we kind of have like a pre-drink on and then it's like, okay, let's meet in a, a couple hours for... A dinner. So we kind of get a buzz on, and then we have these dinner reservations at this like kind of fancy Cooperstown restaurant with like our boss's boss and another uh, creative director, and then this another friend of ours, more coworkers. So we get to this restaurant, and like I don't know, I was pretty buzzed by the time we got to that restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, at the dinner, I'm sitting beside Stacy, who's like we work with her. Also, she's like the nicest woman in the world. Super comfortable with her, 
And then I'm like, okay, this is going to be an easy dinner. I'm not going to screw up. I, even if I say anything stupid, I'm going to kind of whisper it to the people sitting to my left or my right. And it's going to be little jokes like that, which I normally do. But then she gets a tap on the shoulder and a little whisper in the ear from Dave. And he goes, let's switch seats. And I'm like, what's going on? He like, but then I'm kind of flattered. I'm like, oh my God, Dave wants to hang with me. So then I get like a drink. I think I got a double. And we have this, <laughs> we have this like 80 year old waitress. Would you say that's around her age? 80 might be pushing it. Maybe late 70s. Okay. Mid 70s, let's say. <laughs> right. Yeah. She was no spring chicken, but getting really drunk, really drunk. And I'm getting a couple jokes are landing. I'm feeling pretty good. And then by the time the bill comes, I'm really drunk and I'm feeling really loose. And then she gives the bill to Mike or something. And Actually, what it was was it was a it was a drink list, but she had written it out by hand, and she handed it to her friend Chris. And then I just made a joke that it was like a self portrait that she yeah. handed him instead of the drink list, and it gets a good <laughs> laugh. So I'm like, oh yeah, Mike. And then I'm like. Uh, this is my pushy. <laughs> I say in an old lady's voice, like like she drew a portrait of her pussy. <laughs> and it got pretty good laughs for like the juvenile people. And I didn't look at Dave, but then later you told me that he wasn't the biggest fan of the pussy joke. I don't know if he heard it, but I, he just didn't react to it. I mean, for me, what was so funny about us sitting there and then the drunker we got is it was like I was kind of watching you kind of like a like a baby deer learning how to walk and then slowly like starting to run because it's like you make a couple jokes and a couple of them land and it's like you're getting more confident or whatever. And then you said, uh, this is a picture of my put." <laughs> It's a solid joke in it my defense. It made us like bust up laughing. Uh, and I just took a quick look at, at our boss. And, and he didn't like it? I don't know if he heard you, to be completely what honest. What was his reaction? He just didn't really acknowledge the joke. He must have heard. <laughs> but I'm notorious, as you know. Uh, anyone who works knows I'm like the the party guy who's always getting kicked out of the company party. And, <laughs> like how many Christmas parties have I ruined or work parties or MMBAs? Like. Yeah, but you know, that's why they I know me by name at HR. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's part of, uh, you know, the, there's there's something charming about somebody who uh, lets loose. Yeah. Tell that to my parole officer. <laughs> <laughs> so that was our weekend. Of oh, and the wedding was beautiful. It was amazing. Yes. You did not get kicked out of the wedding. It was close. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Scott Wayland. Scott Wayland. Wayland. Whatever. So we find out we're going to do an interview uh, with Scott. This is a pretty exciting deal. At the time, Max, I think, is on the road. He's playing a gig. He's doing something Arkells-ish. So uh, once again, you step up, much like Josh Groban, and you're going to sit in and be the producer for this thing. And I'm uh, kind of nervous for this because I'm not sure if you remember, but he was in trouble for doing a drunken performance. We talk about this in the interview. So so this was... This was off this interview at one point. They're like, no, he's not doing the interview. He canceled press. And then it came back on, and then you're like... Oh, Shane, you got to sit in for this. And this was the first time I'd done that. And I'm kind of shitting myself. It was crazy because, I mean, yeah, he'd, he'd come up with this record. He'd been touring it. I guess he had this performance in Texas where he was what appeared to be annihilated on stage. <laughs> <laughs> well, he denies it in the interview. Right. Uh, and so it's like, basically, he'd sort of, I don't know, this video had gone viral of this performance in Texas. And so I bring this up in the interview, but because this had gone viral and there's all this sort of negative press, he canceled the interview initially. I was like, oh, I guess we're not going to get to do the interview with Scott. And then all of a sudden it was back on again. But I, I was excited because I was like, 
shit. I'm like, this is like my childhood. This guy's like mm-hmm. a founding member of like the Stone Temple Pilots. Like this is, this is a big deal. So I like immediately texted my friend Rob Howe, who's like a diehard fan. And he's like, uh, I'm like, yo, I'm like, what? Give me some questions. And he like immediately hit me back with like a bunch of questions. I ended up using one of his questions, but. Uh, Which one was that? It was the one about, because uh, I guess he had a, a record called 12 Bar Blues that my friend Rob said was very good. And he didn't understand why, um, like he wanted to know why Scott kept joining collectives like why do you why do mm-hmm. you keep coming back to like velvet revolver or this new band wild aboats and, right. and so i incorporated that so rob how you got your question in there so they set up the interview we got to go down to this boardroom you and i mm-hmm. at much this is part of the uh the car wash which we've talked about before on this podcast um and we're just sitting there awkwardly waiting for him to finish up his interview with m3 or something like we can hear him in, like sort of in the mm-hmm. main the main room and we're just kind of waiting in this little boardroom yeah, there was kind of a weird nervous energy in the room as we were sitting there. And I saw him walk by and he looked, it was weird. Like, cause he didn't look good. You're not like, that's a strapping young man there. But you weren't like, like I still kind of envied how cool he looked. He was wearing those awesome f- aviators and shit. He was like a proper rock star. Like you and I, there was a kind of energy in the room and we watched him kind of walk. We were kind of like, it was like a nervous energy. Mm-hmm. We were kind of like giggly and like. Yeah. Didn't know how it was going to go and what kind of mood he was going to be in because of obviously all this stuff we'd heard about. Um, and there were the kind of like rumors and stuff like that, which he d- ends up talking about in the interview. So they come in and he's got like this guy with him and you'll hear him a bit in the interview. He's kind of like his nicest guy. That guy was awesome. Um, and then there's Scott and I guess he was hungry. I don't know if he, this is his breakfast or whatever. Cause it was pretty early in the morning. It was like 11am or something like that. He might've been, I hear this term sometimes I've never used it, but hangry. Maybe that was it. Like when you're hungry and angry at the same time? Yeah, it's not a cool term, but I hear it. And it might have been that. Maybe he was like a little like tired and hangry. He totally could have mm-hmm. been. Uh, and he gets his grilled cheese. And then he was he was intimidating. He kind of like just sat there eating his grilled cheese. Uh, I jump into the interview. He's kind of giving one word answers, uh, which is, you know. I felt bad for you. I didn't know <laughs> what to do. I did. Well, the, the, the thing that was kind of like I knew that we both kind of found funny was that throughout the whole interview, he just slowly munched on his grilled cheese. Mm -hmm. Like there's this rock icon sitting across from us. The whole thing felt absurd. It felt like, like a a fever dream. It was weird. Like I'm trying to talk to Scott Weiland. He's more interested in the grilled cheese than he is in my questions. Shane's beside me. (laughs) (laughs) Doing nothing. Literally, (laughs) literally doing nothing. I'll say it, Mike, what you want to say. Anyway, let's get to it. How's it going? Good, man. We'll put you in this seat if that's all right, just so we can do the recording. Some grilled cheese is there. Yeah. Some grilled cheese. Some food while you interview. <laughs> yes, sir. You guys want to just jump into this, or you want to finish that grilled cheese? Any good? It's from our commissary. Yeah, it is good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a heck of a lot better than nothing. <laughs> all right, go ahead. Let's do it. All right. Feel free to eat throughout. Oh, yeah. Get some water, all that business. You just got to town today? Yeah. Enjoy it? Yeah, I love Toronto. So the creative process can be, you know, very elusive, and uh, you seem energized on this record. Can you talk about times in your career you felt like you were sort of in a sweet spot creatively? Is, is this one of those times? Yeah, I'd say this is definitely one of the top times I've been on in a creative sweet spot. Um, probably the most excited I've been since I made Core. Really? Yeah. Wow. And and I mean, like, why do you think that is? Because of the group of guys I made the album with. Right. We all were on the same creative page. 
speaking of a group of guys, like you've done solo records, but it seems you've always sort of ended up back in a collective, you know, whether it's STP, Velvet Revolver, uh, The Wildabouts. What draws you to a collective, you know? Is it camaraderie? Is it the collaboration? Yeah, it's collaboration and camaraderie and combination of different personalities. Right, and you feel like you got like a, a great sort of uh, lineup yeah. right now, chemistry? Yeah, a great one. Um, we had to replace our guitar player because Jeremy, our guitar player, passed away. I read that. I'm sorry about that, man. That's, yeah, that that's was terrible. very, just a month ago. So that was very difficult. And uh, just an amazing tragedy, horrible tragedy. Um, but we had to soldier on and look for another guitar player, which was a pretty arduous process. But we ended up finding Nick Mayberry, who came in and just slayed it. So he was able to fill Jeremy's very large shoes. Speaking of loss, and you've you know had your fair share um, throughout your life, do you find like touring and making music is sort of the best way to cope with that sort of thing? How do you find that you deal? Yeah, that and and my wife, right. my family, right. It's fine. Well, I mean, touring and I guess family are sort of like they, they can be opposed, and you want to be with your family, um, but then you have to be on the road. So it's almost at odds in a weird way. Yeah, but uh, my wife comes out and spends time with uh, with me on the road. That's great. Yeah, she's my day to day manager. It's fantastic. She works with my management company. Was that sort of like you were like, this is how it's going to go down? I'm bringing my wife. I need her to be around. I want her in my life day to day. Well, it's a mutual feeling. Yeah. We just don't like to be apart from each other. Um, getting back to sort of the collective and, and collaboration and getting on the road, is there anyone in particular that sort of stood out uh, that you've collaborated with sort of in your career where you're like, wow, that was sort of a great other partnership or, or group? Um, Daniel Lenoir. Hey, there you go. Hamilton. Yeah. Um, we're from Hamilton, Ontario, which is where Daniel Lenoir is actually from. Yeah, Daniel, <clears throat> I collaborated with him on 12 Bar Blues. Yeah. And he played with me and my in the band. That was an amazing collaboration. Are you guys still in touch a lot? Or? We see each other now and again. Right. What was it about uh, the collaboration that sort of stood out with him? Um, his ability to bring artistic ideas to the table. You guys just ping-ponging back and forth? Yeah, very much so. Is that what you look for, sort of, in collaboration? I mean, I guess... Definitely. Do you want to be pushed and challenged? Yeah, I always want to be pushed and challenged. Um, I push and challenge myself. And I like for people who do the same thing. Do you find it easy to be a self-starter and sort of, like, motivate yourself, or do you find you need that sort of um, 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 challenger? Um, you know, I can challenge myself and write my own music as well, which I've done before. Like on 12-Bar Blues, uh, I did a lot of that before I started collaborating with Daniel. Um, but uh, um, I do prefer to have a collaborative, collaborative effort. Um, people made a big deal about your performance in Texas the other week. Um, can you talk about the difference between being in the spotlight today versus 20 years ago? Uh, well, social media. Yeah. I mean, it makes all the haters have think they have a voice and a, a reason to be um, negative. And how does that make you feel? Uh, well, that wouldn't make anyone feel good. Um, well, I mean, I, like most things in life, there's sort of multiple sides to sort of any story, and it's rarely black and white. 
But I guess for people in your position, it seems like the narrative is commonly reduced to a tweet or a headline, like usually leading negative. Like, do you become numb to it over time or do you still feel the need to like refute or clarify a story at this point? No, I I clarify things. Like I said, um, you know, my my inner monitor pack wasn't working for the entire show. So I had the inability to hear myself at all. So that made it impossible for me to perform. Yeah, I mean, so like when you say something like, do you feel, and I read that, and do you feel like people are sort of um, just as keen to sort of hear that explanation as they were to sort of jump on the negativity of the initial story? Well, they can create whatever bullshit they want to create. Like, you know, and, and say that I'm back on drugs when it's been 13 years since I've taken drugs. And is that important for you, that the perception, like, I mean, like you said, so they're going to create their own narrative. They're going to say, Scott's back on drugs. And you say, I'm not. And you know that internally, and maybe your circle knows that. Does it bother you that maybe they think that, that the perception's out there that that's the case? Yeah, it bothers me. And so I think that, I don't think that that's the perception. I think there's certain people that hold that perception. Mm-hmm. Would sort of the mindset be to sort of ignore them or to try and educate them? Or are you like, I don't really give a f- at this point? Um, I educate them uh, once, and then if they continue to talk about it, then I don't really give a f- Right. Going back to uh, Blaster, on the song Circles, uh, you sing, there's no angels, there's no servants to save me, save me. Do you feel that there's no angels to save you, or do you feel that there's no angels in general? I, I'm talking about organized religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are your thoughts? I, I don't buy into organized religion. I think it's hogwash. Do you believe in spirituality? Yeah, I believe in spirituality, but um, but organized religion, no. I watched an interview with you a while ago, and you mentioned the movie The Adjustment Bureau. I think it was a Stern interview, and you were talking about sort of angels making small adjustments. I mean, do you believe in the idea of angels? Uh, I don't know about that, really. I believe in spirits. And But you feel like organized religion is... Uh, I feel like it's destructive. It causes war and famine and, t- and overpopulation. I mean, for an artist, do you feel it's important to be outspoken about those things, or do you want that to come through in your music? I mean, uh, at times, if that's what, the, the way that I want, if that's what I want to write about, yeah. Have you ever had views that you felt you didn't want to sort of share, like based on maybe how you might be perceived? Um... Not really. If I feel something and I feel like I want to speak about it, then I'll speak about it. You've never held back in any regard? No. Part of the fascination with you uh, is you, you, you know, for a lot of people, embody people's ideas about frontmen, you know, the sex, drugs, the rock and roll sort of archetype. Um, how close do you feel that portrayal is to you, you know, the person? The Couldn't be further from the truth. The rock and roll part, yeah. But I'm married... And I'm just with my wife. That's it. Right. So and I don't do drugs anymore. So that leaves rock and roll. Right. The most important of the three. Yeah. Uh, was there a time when you felt like you embodied those sort of ideals? Um, not the sex part, but um, yeah, definitely. We've already talked about that. Mm-hmm. Thirteen years ago, I used to do drugs. Right. Um, there's a few ways for rock and rollers to sort of age, you know, uh, like Mick eats a lot of salad. Uh, it would seem like Keith still drinks like he's 20. Um, Springsteen does a lot of push-ups. Like, how do you want to age as you sort of, uh, you know, get to their place and Gracefully. Right. What does it look like to you when you see 20, 30 years in the future? 
Um, I don't know if I'll still be playing music 30 years from now. What would you do if you weren't playing music? Retirement. <laughs> Just enjoy enjoy your life? Pain. How much touring do you think you'll do then? Um, <clears throat> it's hard to say. I mean, in the next 10 years, probably a lot. But after that, I don't really know. Do you sort of put a, a marker on things? I kind of let things go as they come. So actually, music's always an interesting thing because, I mean, when you're doing music, it, it essentially is a business, but I think a lot of people don't think of it that way. Or like, you know, it's not necessarily a lifestyle. It's like, this is my thing. I got to go on the road. I'm going to write music because I want to, but then I also have to monetize it and sort of set up my life. Um, how, how conscious are you of that? Uh, you have to be very conscious of it. I mean, is it something you think about a lot? Well, yeah. I mean, it, it, I mean it's my art form, and it's also how I make a living. Right. So I have to think about it. I have bills to pay. <laughs> right. I mean, does that ever uh, seep into the creative part of it, though? No, not for me. Cool. How was that grilled cheese? <laughs> it's good. On a scale of 1 to 10, what would you give it? I'd give it a 8. <laughs> That's pretty good. Well, thanks for your time, man. All right. Thank you. All right, now it's time for the uh, segment where Shane comes on and he reviews a movie that he has recently seen. And in fact, this episode is an all Mike and Shane episode. I'm back. <laughs> um, Shane, what movie did you recently see that you would like to talk about? I saw uh, two. I saw the Chris Farley doc. Yes, I saw that as well. Actually. I don't want to talk about it. No, I saw it's too sad. Too sad. Uh, I did cry during that. But it's actually very funny. Mm-hmm. Like because they have like access to all the skits as they're telling the mm-hmm. stories and showing the clips from the skits. Like I laughed so much forgetting about a lot of those skits. Like I obviously remember mm-hmm. those skits, but every time you see them, they're still funny. I love the one where he plays the designer. Yes. And David Spade's like his uh, assistant. Yeah. And he's like, we may be partners in the bedroom, but right now I'm your boss. And he's like, get out of my face. <laughs> it was so it was so funny. Um, but yeah, I wanted to talk about uh, Chris Farley Doc. See that, that one. But I wanted to talk about M. Night Shyamalan's newest. <laughs> Take 38. That was the best one. Um, I want to talk about... That guy, that guy who made The Sixth Sense. M. Night Shyamalan. That's the one. His newest movie called The Visitor. That Yes. About the, Wait, the, it's not called The Visitor. It's called The Visit. Yes. You're killing this segment. <laughs> like, you're slaying. Uh, pop culture aficionado. <laughs> Can I even? <laughs> I can't say aficionado. I'm, I swear I haven't had one drink in this room. I had three before I came. No, I did not come yet. No, I'm kidding. Okay, uh, point. <laughs> the Visit. I saw The Visit. Uh, for our viewers that don't know, M. Night Shyamalan has this new movie out. It's one of those like found footage movies where the kids shoot it. Two young people go to visit their grandparents. Yeah, I didn't know. It was weird. I didn't know it was a found footage film going into it. Okay. I actually, this kind of, I don't do this often, but I saw this movie with my mom and my sister. Who chose the film? I believe my mom did because she kind of likes being spooked a little bit. All right. I think she thought it was more of like a classic uh, horror film. Right. And yeah, she's very eccentric woman, very excitable. And Tiffany's like that on crack, my sister Tiffany. Um, (laughs) But not actually on crack. I don't know. The the jury's still out on that (laughs) one. No, she's definitely not. She's never even like smoked a joint, had a drink. 
Like, if you drink a Diet Coke, she'll be like, you know that it's going to give you cancer. Like, she's like that. Very strange, in a good, endearing way to some people uh, who aren't me in a movie theater. (laughs) No, because you do kind of get scared when you go to a movie with these people. I probably haven't been in 12 years. uh, To a movie with your mom and sister. Yeah. No, actually, it was longer. The last movie I saw with them was Indian in the Cupboard. Oh, my goodness. So that was a while at Upper James Cinema in Hamilton. (laughs) So I'm a little bit scared. I uh, I treated my mom to the movie this time. I remember she paid for Indian in the Cupboard, so a little bit, <laughs> pay it forward a little bit. There you go. <laughs> uh, which actually was the last movie I saw with Tiff, uh, pay it forward with Haley Joel Osmond, which is from uh, Sixth Sense, which is an M Night Shyamalan. Oh my God, this is all connected. This is nuts. You literally just turned into Rain Man. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, Pay for the movie for my mom. So my mom's like, I'm going to buy you a snack. And my mom is the queen of sneaking snacks in. So for her to buy me a snack, I'm kind of getting emotional from that because my mom's notoriously cheap. Right. We literally, I'm not even joking, we use one ply in our household toilet paper. You'll never find a family on earth. I dare you to find one that uses one ply toilet paper. We do to this day. Like I don't live at home anymore, but... My mom still does, and she uses it. to Because of it, do you avoid going to the bathroom at home? My girlfriend, Alex, met my mom for the first time this weekend, and I'm just praying she doesn't have to go. Like uh, (laughs) My mom's like, "Uh, water, Alex? I'm like, no, no, she's good. We're cool. We're just going to have some cake because it was Tiffany's birthday, and we're going to leave. And then she went to the washroom, so I had to be like, oh, by the way, we have one-ply toilet paper. Because you can't not say anything before she goes in. You acknowledge it before she goes in? Because you have to make a joke of it. Otherwise, she's just going to discover the one-ply and, like, you know, be humiliated for me. <laughs> so I told her, and then my mom's like, what are you saying? I was like, I'm just telling her about the one ply mom that, you know, you save 35 cents and you use twice as much toilet paper anyway. And it's an unpleasant wiping experience. And it breaks off. Like, and that's what they use at the movie theater. So my mom feels right at home because the movie theater <laughs> uses one ply. It's like her safe place. So um, what's it called? She buy, We all buy nachos. Which I'm scared at, too, because it's the loudest food you can possibly eat. People, trust me, like, I know we're going to be trouble in this movie. Are your sister and mother loud eaters in general? Yeah. Yeah, we're all, I'm a loud eater. And I'm a very messy person, all that. So, where the movie starts, like, for, through all the trailers, uh, very loud. Like, you know how you can tell if someone's going to be a troublemaker in a movie if they're loud during the trailers? Yeah. It's like, oh, shit, these are the bad people. So just like, ooh, that looks good. Oh, ooh. Every, everything that happens, there's a noise associated with it. And we're seeing a horror film. So, you know, there's a couple, like, cat scares or whatever, like, is in any horror film where they open, like, the medicine cabinet and the, person, the person's in the mirror. Just, like, fake scary before the real scares happen. Just like, ah, ah, screams. My mom's like, quiet. But my mom's, like, reprimanding my sister and the reprimanding is louder than the actual scream itself. And then we're eating the nachos and my mom's pulling out all the candy she snuck in. And you know when you're, like, poor and you bring cans of pop in? And you hear that. And you hear the... But usually I try to do like a cough, but it's like all these pops opening. Everyone's like these welfare people just <laughs> snuck into the theater with their cans of pop. And then, then my the movie mom starts. just got a cell phone. So her cell phone goes off. Oh. So I'm hearing this f- cheesy song playing. I'm like, what the f- is that? But it's like kind of like hushed. So I'm like, who is doing this? I don't think of my mom as a cell phone person. And my mom's like, oh. 
I go, oh, that's my phone. Pulls it out, takes her literally a minute and a half to figure out how to shut the cell phone off. And I have an iPhone and I worked at a cell phone shop, but this phone is from like 1989. <laughs> so you can't figure out how to shut it off. And people, thank God, aren't saying anything. Finally got the phone off. I'm humiliated. I'm sweating like a pig. I'm wearing this hat. <laughs> I just have it down. <laughs> then uh, there's a part in the the movie like uh i haven't even talked about the f- movie review i'm sorry i'm sorry it's making me like sweat just talking about this but i guarantee you this is far more entertaining than the right. movie the crux of the movie is these kids go on a visit to their grandparents and the mom has is kind of estranged from the grandparents because when she was young the grandparents did something that kind of uh in, in her mind just was like she's I'm never going to talk to these grandparents again but the kids want a relationship with the grandparents so they're they're sent off for a week with the grandparents a bunch of weird creepy grandparent stuff happens the one kid's a germaphobe uh the the male character and uh, the girl character is a documentarian. That's why it's a found footage film. Okay, so the brother's a germaphobe, the sister's a documentarian. I don't know. This might. This isn't a spoiler. It's just a weird thing that happened in the movie, and you can cut this out. But the uh, the grandpa puts a diaper, a dirty diaper, in the kid's face, <laughs> and Tiff goes, "I'm not even a germaphobe, but I find that disgusting." <laughs> Like she says this out loud. She the says theater. this out loud. And then people behind kind of laugh. But like she's not trying to be funny. This is just Tiff. And so I'm annoyed the whole movie. It's really hard to be engaged into the film. But then it acts like, you know, how uh, M. Night Shyamalan has good twists in his film. He does. There's actually a really good f- twist in this movie. Although before the twist, it's, it, I will say it's not a great film, but it is probably his best film in the last six years. Do you want to guess what the twist is? I won't tell you if you're right, but I'm just curious if you can guess what it is. Full disclosure. You know it? I know it. How? I read the plot. How? I read the plot on Wikipedia. You, why'd you do that? Because I was dying to know the twist. And I, knew, I wasn't going to wait for it believe, to come out. I told you we were going to talk about it on this podcast. I didn't know you were going to quiz me. If I knew you were going to quiz me. I told you I was going to do that. That was going to be our little gimmick. As the film producer, I'm very disappointed. <laughs> Shane doesn't give a shit. <laughs> Phil and Max is f-ing furious right now. That is our episode. I would like to thank our guest, Scott Weiland. I would like to thank Shane Cunningham for coming on and doing the whole episode with me. You can follow us at Mike on Much on Instagram and Twitter. All the artwork you see for the Mike on Much podcast is done by Jenna Gregory at jennasdoodles.com. The Mike on Much podcast is produced by Max Kerman, and I am your host, Mike Veerman. See you next week if we don't die on the weekend.